The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 5th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So researchers from MIT, along with Microsoft and Adobe... Okay, I'm going to stop myself right there. Do you have a good feeling? Do you have a good feeling right now? When I say researchers from... Where they're from really affects your expectations. Like researchers from the University of Washington's Gottman Institute. You know about these guys? Oh, they always come up with the most delightful surveys and stories. Like guys with mustaches are attracted to ladies with mustaches. Whatever. But it's like a love lab. But then other researchers from, you know, researchers from OKCupid. Bammo! I'm going on a date with a stevedore. All right, so let's, let's backtrack. Researchers from MIT... Microsoft and Adobe, neutral. Okay, let's see where it goes. Have found out that by reading the video of an object, you can hear the sound playing in a room. What? Huh? I'll explain. So sounds are vibrations. We all know this. And when music is loud, maybe you've looked at your plants and you see the plant leaves vibrating or a glass of water vibrating. Picture taking a camera, not a cell phone camera, but a commercially available SLR camera and shooting a video of a plant vibrating or a glass of water or, and this is what they did, a bag of potato chips analyze the video, and you can backtrack and figure out what the sound was. So MIT put out a video explaining how it works. They played the sound that was in the room, and then they took pictures of things, objects, through soundproof glass, and listened to what it sounded like. Now, the applications for spying are obviously limitless, but what I'm going to do is I am going to do the rest of the show this way. So right now I have is a spork wrapped in cellophane. I'm going to put it right down, right there. I'm going to shut this mic, and Andrea, you're there on the other side of the glass? Yep. Do you have the video recorder? It's ready to go. Okay. So you shut my mic, and we're just going to videotape the spork, and we'll see what it picks up. You ready? Let's do it. Coming up in the spiel, a summit about Africa got us to thinking about one country that you probably never consider. Do you know what country in Africa is a runaway success story? But first... Mic on, Andrea, turn, can you turn my mic on? Thank you. So I am going to note that that is a cool thing. It is cool that that can be done, but that doesn't mean that it should be done. So yes, we are going to do an African summit spiel, but first, comedian and public access impresario, Chris Gethard. Chris Gethard's a stand-up comic whose comedy album is called My Comedy Album, and his public access show is called The Chris Gethard Show. He has a number of interesting interactions with celebrities, and he seems perpetually on the cusp of becoming a celebrity himself. So how did he get to this place? Well, here's an insight. My mom goes, hey, do you want to hear a story that I've never told anyone? I went, okay. And she said, great. It's about your birth. (laughs) My dad went, I've never heard it. And she went, no, I've never had the heart to tell anyone this story. She said, when you were little and the other kids used to pick on you for having such a big head, it always broke my heart. Because I knew that when you were being born and you started crowning, like when you were emerging, 
the doctor took a step back and shouted the words, my God, his head, it's as big as a bowling ball. That's how my life began. It's the very first thing that ever happened to me. I hadn't yet escaped the birth canal and I was being mocked by a healthcare professional. Chris, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you for letting me be on the show. Absolutely. I love public access cable. In fact, I cut the cable because I don't want to pay 120 bucks, and I'm probably the only person, you know, who's like, well, I, I could do it, but I'm giving up public access TV. I just love you it. You can watch it all online in Manhattan. I know. MNN.org, baby. I know, but it's the, it's the joy of discovery. Like, you're it's just true. clicking through the channels, and you see someone talking about being a Civil War reenactor. Or yeah. someone doing a call-in show. But what was your attraction to public access cable? Well, I'd been doing a show at the UCB Theater, which is, like, um, I think pretty well known now as, like, a breeding ground for, for comedy. And I was doing a show there that was uh, – it caught on quick. It became very popular in New York. Right away, it was just, like, couldn't get a ticket. We were doing a lot of, I think, like, out-of-the-box stuff and kind of ran its course there. We did a thing where I convinced Diddy, Sean Combs, to come perform on the show and – after that, it was like, we're not going to top it. And I happened to talk to an old student of mine who I had taught in an improv class. And he was like, your show would fit really well on public access. I work at the public access studio. And then he was telling me they have three cameras. They have, you can take live calls, all this stuff. And I grew up on public access. I grew up on, like, local TV. You'd get up to, like, channel 85 or whatever, and you'd see some weirdo who just made his own TV show and managed to get it on. And, right. like, the ads he would have would be for, like, like for me, it was this guy, Uncle Floyd, in New Jersey. Sure. And I think, yeah. Out of Secaucus, New Jersey, with Out the of... horrible hats. Yeah. And I've always thought he was, oh, this is a funny guy. And after, like, years of watching him, I don't even think he's trying to be funny. He just has a funny hat. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, like, a vaudevillian yes. more than he is yes. a comedian. Yes. I thought he was Dr. Demento, but he's really, <laughs> he's not. He doesn't do parody songs. He's a vaudevillian. Yeah, yes. he can play any song on the piano. He tells, like, very cheesy jokes, does yes. acts with puppets, and... I grew up with him, and you'd watch him, and then his ads would be, like, for the Fairfield Flea Market on Route 46. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is very much a guy from my part of the world. I just loved that growing up. And the idea that I could create something like that when it's not available so much anymore, it was cool to realize, like, oh, there is still a type of kid out there that's attracted to this kind of thing. So that's kind of how I wound up with it. And then the actual internet side of it and the interactivity is what made me really addicted to it. Right. And that's what made it transcend just Manhattan. I remember growing up, my friend from uh, Boston, the big thing was there was a guy who did extra help and would do, you know, whatever, draw your proof on the board. And so they'd give him a particularly hard problem, sending him to the board. And as soon as he was away, because the guy was, you know, also working the calls, they'd yell the dirtiest words they could just to see the guy scramble. Yeah. So yeah. it was like the game was you'd have to come up with like a really good proof to get the guy to go to the board and right. then you'd have to be this, the kind of guy who would know a good mathematical, challenging <laughs> mathematical proof but also the dirtiest words imaginable. Yeah, we had one. It was on, it wasn't public access. It was on New, uh, Channel 12 which was like the New Jersey station. Yeah. And they had a call-in show. I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of it but it was this very nice blonde lady and it was like commu a community issues call-in show. Right. And my brother used to love to prank him and I'll never forget there was one about like how to help your kids get ready for the SATs because testing is becoming more and more important. And he called up and he was like, I actually just took my SATs and just from the inside, I thought I might have some insight. Uh, and she was like, oh, this is great. Thank you for calling, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, you know, I think you got to remember like this. Oh, my God. And she's like, what? And he's like, 
there's a man in my house. <laughs> she was like, what? And he's like, I think there's a man in my house. I have to go. And he hung off. And then we would just watch her on TV like, uh, Greg from West Orange, I hope I hope everything's all right. Um, let us know. Call us back. Let us know. Just he would constantly do that prank call where he would insinuate someone was breaking into his house while he was live on the... Do you have the tapes? The, no, no. Oh. We never were smart enough to oh. tape them. But you, on your on your show, on the public access show, you have a lot of great interactions with callers, and you invite callers to become sort of regular members of the show. Tell us a couple of the ones that have been successful, and maybe the ones that have flopped. One of the ones I like best, just because comedically I thought it was strong, and also interactive-wise, like the interactivity of it really showed off what we can do. Like, I love that we can take some chances that no one else could. Like, mm-hmm. there's no consequences on public access. So one thing we talked about was, you know, like all the late night shows have recurring characters. And we like to, we've every once in a while we'll do a show where we kind of like maybe poke fun at the tropes of late night TV. I love late night TV. Obsessed with it. Letterman is like my God. Love Johnny Carson, Conan, all of them. That being said, like I think it's a very well-known thing that the format is very locked Rigid, in at this yeah. point. So we like to maybe do some stuff that pokes fun at that. So we were like, you know, all these shows have recurring characters. We want our recurring characters but we want to put the power in your hands. Like, we want you to like the recurring characters, so you might as well come up with them. So we did this thing called the Crowdsourced Character Contest, which was anybody who watches the show can email in the names of a character. You name just the name. Don't describe the character. We don't want to know your ideas comedically, just a name. And we got, I think, close to 2,000 submissions on that. And then our writers went through and picked the 10 they thought were had the most potential and asked local comedians and improvisers from around the city to come portray these things and they kind of said like okay here's the name here's what we're thinking do with it what you want we had these 10 characters come on and do a bit and then the viewers could vote on which one they wanted to become a permanent member of the show so the winner of the first one was called the guy who likes cream but not too much cream (laughs) and i really love that because it's like some kid in kansas just was like that would be the name of a dumb thing and then our writers were like this actor would be good at that and then was it a kid in kansas or it was some kid from somewhere like he wasn't a new york kid he's not a comedy writer He's just some, like, creative little weirdo from the middle of the country. I don't remember exactly who it was. But, yeah, that one was good. Meowjik Matt, the magician for cats, was good. (laughs) Vampire Abraham Lincoln Hunter. The mopey janitor with bad timing and a broken mop. You know, just like... Very specific. Yeah, yeah, I just love that. Yeah, weenie feet bobbins. Bronk. (laughs) That was one of my favorites was just just the word ronk as the name of a character. And then we have to see what people will do with it. And I just really like that because it is. It kind of encourages the people watching the show like be a part of this leave your fingerprints on it control it in a way that i think is actually pretty modern people who watch entertainment these days especially young people they're used to being able to leave comments they're used to being able to to have an effect on it you know to tweet at the people who made it to leave comments on message boards and make fan art and and spread it on tumblr and be a part of that process and we did a thing that i think speaks to the traditions of late night tv but really kind of opens it up, I think, to a very modern way of creating it. That was one that I was really proud of. We've had a ton that fall on their face. We've had a lot of episodes that don't make sense or are just straight up bad. I'm the first to admit that. But then every once in a while we have an episode like that where I'm like, I think that's actually something that if 
Conan did it or Fallon did it, yeah. it would be hugely popular. It that's would become true, but a that's, huge thing, you know? But that's not the only criteria for success for your show. No, like, not at all. You, you had this episode where you invited callers who stopped calling to call in and explain why. Yeah, we why. did that recently. That, yeah. was, pretty, that yeah. was pretty good. And Thanks. It, I mean, obviously, you have a cadre of people who are pretty much in on the joke yeah. uh, and, and are part of the community of the show. But do you still get people who like, just come across this for the first time? I wish we got more. Yeah. It's really hard to get calls through now because it's become kind of the show has become part of you know there's very it's very I think for kids today comedy is kind of like what bands were for me growing up like it was the sort of thing that like if you liked the Ramones or you liked the replacements you were saying something about yourself and you like the Smiths I love the Smiths you know what I mean like and that meant when I was in high school like that put me in a certain corner of the world exactly what that means yeah Yeah. there's like for you growing up when the Smiths were around you know the kids who like the Smiths that's a certain type of kid I think comedy is that for a lot of kids now and I think like if you know Reggie Watts or if you are a fan of Pete Holmes like that's I think something like that and there's kids who really love our show and I'm grateful for that but the phone lines just get jammed. For those of us making the show, myself most of all, the early days kind of felt like the Wild West and nobody was watching, but there was real adrenaline rushes every time we discovered something new. And now the show's popular enough that I kind of feel a little bit, of, a little bit more responsibility to deliver and be consistent, which was never really part of the mission statement. Like, it always had permission to fail. And I, I think I've been feeling some weight on my shoulders with that, and I want to kind of chase it away. And you were saying that with the show. I mean, that was this is basically yeah. your uh, preamble to getting yeah. these calls. Well, you we want to find the magic again. Yes. And, this, and I don't know if you explicitly said this, but also the fear. Like, it seemed like there was more adrenaline back in the beginning. Yeah. You kind of got off on it, that it was a little scary and it really might not work. Yeah. When things become a well-honed machine, it's great for the viewer, it's great for the fan, but maybe it's a little yeah. less exciting. And I you. think a big part of it, too, is we sold a pilot to Comedy Central. They were they were thinking about buying the show, and it came really close, but it didn't go through. And I'm actually totally okay with that. Like, I get it. I get that this show is not for everybody and that they think maybe they're not the platform for it or that it's... It's not something that they're ready to commit to because it's a little strange. I get that. But then in my mind, I'm like, well, we had really, I think, kind of started tailor-making the things to kind of show that we could exist on Comedy Central. To kind of like We're making this thing. We're aiming to be there. They're very interested. We might as well show what we can do and really put it in that box. And they passed on it. And that's okay. But if they passed on it, then we might as well go back to being fucking lunatics. You yeah. know what I mean? We might as well go back to doing it our way. And that's kind of a tough thing because we spent six months making it really tight and polished and good. And it's kind of a tough thing to realize like, oh, we have to walk away from this thing being as good as it can be so we can get back to it being as creative as it can be because those aren't necessarily the same things. Right. Now, celebrities, uh, you have a tattoo of Morrissey. He signed your shoulder. He signed my arm. And, and you tattooed it right I away. Did. I did. I also that? have one of his lyrics on the same arm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there I you got go. that. That's cool. And afterwards, it takes strength to be gentle and kind. So right now, Chris is showing me his uh, sweet guns, both uh, illustrated you. with Morrissey. And, of course, you had Diddy on the show. And then, yeah. as you described it, once he was on your UCB show, like Alexander the Great, you wept because there were no more worlds left to conquer. Yes. Get that. Yes. So being famous, <laughs> somewhat famous, mm. as famous as you are. Hey, look, mm. you put it, you know, you Google you. Things hundreds come of thousands up. Things of come up. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Comedy Central. But I'm special. far from the most famous person to come out of my yeah. world. You're far from the mer- most famous person on your body. That would be Marcy. Yes, true. <laughs> so, but the question is, what does being 
some sort of famous, taught you about being a fan? Well, that's a great question. I just yesterday, I was walking down my street in Brooklyn with a bag of laundry balanced on my head. And this guy stopped me. He's like, Chris Gethard. And I was like, yeah, what's up, man? And he's like, I love you. And I was like, thanks, dude. That's nice. I love you too, man. And he was like, what are you? And he was just like looking at me carrying yeah. laundry. And Maybe he, he expected like, you to be debuting a character. Laundry yeah. head. I'm workshopping laundry Well, he just head. had his look on He had this look on his face that's like, you carry laundry? And I'm like, yeah, I take my laundry to the laundromat just like everybody else. So it's taught me, I think, about being a fan that any celebrity who feels inaccessible is choosing to be that way in a fashion that I personally think is gross. Mm-hmm. I kind of think that people who shift or change into that celebrity lifestyle are choosing to do so. And I don't know, like, I would much rather maintain being a pretty average guy from New Jersey. And I think what I've come across is being someone who's occasionally around people who are much more famous than I am. I've started to pick up on it's it's made it easier for me to see like, oh, this is a person who still has their head on straight. This is a person who still has compassion and and sees themselves as part of a greater whole versus people, I think, who maybe choose to go into that Hollywood track where all they can talk about is the business and all they want to do is get more attention on Twitter and this and that. Like, I can see the difference now. It's made me see the people I'm fans of as a little bit more human just because I'm consistently amused at the fact that people who meet me who are fans of mine seem very, very surprised that I'm just like a guy waiting online at the same restaurant they are. Chris Gethard is a very important person on The Chris Gethard Show. Thanks so much, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. And now the spiel. The news out of Africa is dire. Ebola, war, poverty. Or so it would seem. But in fact, the horsemen of the apocalypse are actually in abeyance in Africa. Today marks the midpoint of a three-day White House-led summit discussing Africa. Many African leaders are in Washington. Over and over again, organizers and the speakers there are emphasizing the strengths of the continent. This video, which includes Liberian President Ellen Sirleaf Johnson, played for the conference attendees today. Africa is a powerhouse. Africa is the place of the future. It's the last frontier. Six of ten fastest-growing economies are in Africa. Over 5% growth expected by 2015. But the demographics of consumption are extraordinarily favorable going forward. It has a middle class now that is larger than India. This is the moment for U.S. businesses to invest in Africa. And then Michael Bloomberg, one of the conference sponsors, spoke to the crowd. Africa is expected to reach a 5% overall growth rate in 2015. It boasts six of the world's 10 fastest growing economies. So as you can hear during the conference, certain stats had a way of coming up again and again. So there's that fastest growing statistic. Now let's put that in context a little bit. Realize this, in 2013, the International Monetary Fund ranked Iraq as the world's sixth fastest growing economy and Libya as the eighth. So sometimes a fast-growing economy is just because it's coming from almost nothing. We see that in the case of one African country, South Sudan. It is still war-torn. The majority of its citizens are still engaged in subsistence agriculture. But it is fast-growing. 
However, that statistic about the fastest growing economy, six out of 10 being in Africa, that's over a decade. And there are some real success stories. Angola, Ethiopia, Lesotho, Malawi, Nigeria, Rwanda, Tanzania. But it doesn't seem that America is paying attention to that. If the potential market of this enormous middle class isn't enough to convince businesses to invest in Africa, well, here's Senator Chris Coons. He was interviewed by my Slate colleague Dave Weigel on the Weigel cast. He pretty much grabs America by the lapels and points out that our economic rival has a huge head start in Africa. China has seen clearly what uh, many U.S. policy and uh, political and business leaders have failed to see, which is the enormous potential of a rapidly emerging Africa. Uh, China is everywhere. Uh, They have more uh, foreign commercial officers in Nairobi alone than we do on the entire continent. But sometimes to see the potential, it helps to have a lodestar, an example of past success that you could point to and say, just look at them. So what's that in Africa? What's the African country that could be the example of success and stability? Actually, there is one. There is a country that since its independence in the mid-60s, up until about a decade ago, had the highest economic growth rate in the world. It is listed as the 27th freest economy by the Heritage Foundation. That is two below Japan, five above Norway. It is the least corrupt country on the continent. In fact, on Transparency International's rankings, it's above Portugal, Taiwan, and Israel. Its per capita income of $16,000, though meager by American standards, is extremely high for the region. This country that I am speaking of, did you have Botswana? Did you have Botswana in the home pool? It's Botswana. James Clark Leith, an economist and professor, is author of Why Botswana Prospered. Leith, by the way, taught at the University of Western Ontario, a province that, he says, compares unfavorably to Botswana by some measures. If you make comparisons, say, with my home province of Ontario, Botswana is basically better. So why is Botswana such a success story? Leith says a big reason should play well with an idealistic American view of freedom. They started out very early uh, having uh, open elections. Uh, and when you have open elections, uh, the, the, party ha- the, the party in power has to demonstrate to the population. And even to this day, uh, the president goes around the countryside uh, actually uh, going to what are referred to as Kotla meetings, which are the basic uh, kind of town hall meetings that we think of in, in our part of the world, uh, and uh, meeting the people and answering questions from the people. And similarly, within Parliament, there are lots of questions that are asked and have to be answered by the minister responsible. Yes, Botswana did have some advantages. Mineral wealth, water wealth, not as brutal a history of colonialism as some of its southern African neighbors. But Leith says Botswana, meaning the governed and the government, have consistently made prudent decisions. I remember very early on uh, in the in the mid-'80s, there that was when the diamonds started initially to produce some considerable revenue for government. Uh, and then we had a session, it was an all-party caucus of Parliament, and we just went through, okay, what are the options? Spend it all now? Uh, no. There was general agreement that we had to establish some reserves, and those reserves then served it very, very well uh, in the next few years. Those reserves then were continued to be maintained, and when the shock hit in, 19, in 2008, 2009, 
Botswana was able to actually run a significant budget deficit a, uh, and a balance of payments deficit, but didn't run out of reserves. And so as a consequence of that, uh, was able to get out of the recession uh, and has had a balance of bu- balanced budget and a balance of international payments uh, for the last couple of years. Now, you may have noticed that the book the professor wrote is called Why Botswana Prospered, Past Tense. The economy has slowed down. Of course, you can't sustain a boom forever. But Leith believes Botswana is still managing its economy ably, and it is a lesson for others. Or it could be if others would just take the lesson. So that's one of the purposes of this three-day summit. Maybe other African countries will find inspiration within. Maybe America will find similar success stories in Africa. Africa was once called the dark continent because it was unknown. Today, it is not unknowable. And if we put in the effort, there's a lot we could learn about Africa. And a lot of that learning will come from Africa itself. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, had a little ham. Ham? Come here, Mr. Watson. Bring Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. I want to see him. You could listen to us in SoundCloud. You could subscribe in iTunes. Here are some iTunes stats if you want to leave us a review or a rating. So the gist right now has 382 reviews, 10 are negative, meaning one or two stars. Frisky's Grillers has 1,022 reviews, 63 are bad, one or two stars. So I, I say this because I don't want to give the impression that most eaters or owners of eaters of Frisky's Grillers do not like the experience, but the ones that do are telling Frisky's, like Fluff No Like, Cat Says No Good, Cat Doesn't Like It three exclamation marks. And I'm not sure that I would tell people real chicken when it plainly reads byproduct. Not a fan. Sadly, my frisky kitty Zazzy does not seem to enjoy the griller's kitty food. She does, however, seem to enjoy the sensational seafood and the surfing and turfing, not to mention the indoor kitty wet food. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. You can email the gist at slate.com. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Leave us a comment about the show or about Frisky Grillers. Sadly, my Frisky Kitty Zazzy no like gist. Part of gist with crazy sound make Frisky Kitty less frisky. Sad kitty. Sorry, Zazzy. But anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs>